God, we continue to move from the empty tomb and alleluias of Easter, navigating just how we are called to live out our faith in the world. We continue to grapple with how to love our neighbor, even on days when it seems so very difficult. We earnestly seek to love you, and yet we struggle with what that looks like when the world seems to place greed and selfishness and avarice at a higher value than peace justice, and community, which Jesus taught. God, hear our prayers that we might continue the work of Easter, the work of transformation, reconciliation, and gifts of new life. Guide us as we strive to make choices that lift up others, that encourage those around us, and that foster hope. In all we do, may we remember to share the extraordinary love and grace that you offer to each of us without end, and without restriction. May our actions and relationships be marked by the good news that you are with us, that you love us, and that you will never forsake us. And we rejoice that you love not only us, but that your goodness and mercy belong to each and every person, regardless of how the world sees them or labels them. Help us to be part of your life-giving and life-changing presence in the world revealing and celebrating what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. We pray all of this in your name.
The witness of Scripture, the Gospel according to John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 13. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. <coughs> so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Continuing from the Acts of the Apostles. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength.
long time ago. It was a different kind of time. People would communicate by writing letters. Sometimes, at the bottom of the letter, below the signature, there would be PS. Stands for postscript. It's a thought that comes after the main body of the letter has been written, since there was no way to erase a section of the ink-written letter to insert the additional thought, the only option would be to add it postscript. It might only be one sentence, but it was important to include in the letter. Today, we hear a postscript from John's Gospel. John chapter 20 ends with a summary statement that Jesus did many other signs not included in the gospel, but what is written is sufficient for those to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. That's a fine closing sentence. And then comes the postscript. We call it chapter 21, and it opens with a postscript kind of phrase after these things. As John tells us about another encounter of Jesus with the disciples, it can be difficult to know when to end a story, especially like John's story of Jesus. Oh, by the way, one more thing, says John. Years ago, attending a preaching conference, Gardner Taylor and Fred Craddock, two giants of preaching in the 20th century, sat on the chancel of the National City Christian Church, answering questions submitted to them about sermons. One of the questions was, how do you know when to end a sermon? To which Gardner Taylor, in his deep, resonant voice, responded, well, that reminds me of the old joke about the preacher who was going on and on with the sermon well into the lunch hour. And finally, one parishioner turned to the other and said, when is this preacher going to finish? To which the other parishioner said, he finished a long time ago. <laughs> he just doesn't know when to quit. John might have finished, but he did not quit. And it's a good P.S. It's the fourth resurrection appearance, first to Mary in the garden, then to the disciples on the night of resurrection, then to the disciples and Thomas one week later. We are not exactly sure when Jesus greets the disciples in the early morning, after a long night of failed fishing, but it was after the disciples had left Jerusalem and found their boats and their nets and were back on the Sea of Galilee, now named the Sea of Tiberias after one of the Roman rulers. There were seven disciples, some of them named, others not, which means that the original 12 minus Judas now were going their separate ways. The movement placing Jesus on the throne, supplanting Roman rule had not come to fruition, but 
Neither was Friday's cross the end. Mary knew that. These disciples knew that. But what they did not know was exactly how life after the resurrection was to be lived. Well, sometimes when you don't know what to do, you just do something. And what these disciples did was go back home. Go back to work. If you've ever fished all night and had only mosquito bites and exhaustion and uncertainty to show for it, then you might be in the mood of the disciples that pre-dawn morning. If they thought their mission to change the world had mostly failed, now even the fishing is going poorly. Maybe they've lost their touch after having been with Jesus for three years. What now? As mysteriously as in the garden with Mary and the locked rooms with the disciples, Jesus is on the beach having worked up some glowing coals with bread baking and fish sizzling. He shouts some fishing instructions, resulting in a great catch and a recognition that this is no ordinary chef on the beach, but instead the bread of heaven come to feed them. And it's not lost on us what John's gospel is doing. The last time Peter stood near a charcoal fire, it was in the courtyard of the high priest while Jesus was being interrogated. Peter was asked, Actually, it's more than that. He was named as a disciple of Jesus, to which he said emphatically, no, I am not. Three times he said, no, I am not his disciple. After these things, Jesus shows up to remind Peter and the disciples that their past failures do not determine their future behaviors. And so Jesus is on the beach by a charcoal fire. And he says to Peter, yes, you are. Yes, you are my disciple. Jesus shows up amid their ordinary vocation to say he still needs them. He still needs them to bring good news going forward. Christ doubles back and doubles down on his disciples, showing once more that grace is not a one-time moment, but it's a call that loves and resonates and restores and empowers continually. Wondrous as that breakfast on the beach morning communion is, we know that since this is John's gospel, there is more going on here than one storyline. It is, after all, a rather lengthy postscript. Jesus does not show up only to instruct the disciples on better fishing techniques or to serve as host for a meal the disciples could not find at a local diner. Jesus is there to remind them that as his disciples, they are both graced and commissioned. Because after breakfast, 
Christ tells them that they are not first and foremost fisher folk or whatever profession disciples might have at any given moment. What they are are shepherds. Shepherds sent into this world to take care of the flock whom Jesus loves. And John has told us this means the whole world to which Jesus has been sent. So the disciples are shepherd fishers and shepherd doctors and shepherd teachers and shepherd IT specialists and shepherd administrators, and shepherd mechanics, and shepherd cleaners, and shepherd contractors, and shepherd coaches, and shepherd drivers, and shepherd attorneys, and shepherd advisors, and shepherd retirees, and shepherd parents, which is not to say we use Christian as an expedient adjective, but is to say in everything we do, no matter what we do, we are to tend, feed, care for the flocks, as Jesus has. After these things, John begins his postscript. And we realize this story is not only about the disciples gathered by a sea a few weeks after resurrection. It is also the story of the disciples gathered in a sanctuary 2,000 years after resurrection. If that's the postscript, the other story from Acts that we heard this morning is more of a sequel. We may remember that the author of the Gospel of Luke has also written a follow-up story called the Acts of the Apostles. It is the story of some of what happened after that day of Pentecost, which is likely the best-known story from this book that we simply call Acts. What we heard today comes right after what is probably the second best-known story in the book of Acts. Saul, who would become Paul, is on his way to Damascus carrying a fistful of orders to arrest those who are following Jesus and to bring them to Jerusalem for trial. And on the way, Saul is blinded by a light, knocked to the ground, hears a voice, after which he ceases to be a persecutor of those who follow Christ and becomes the most influential early follower of Christ. Now, while much of the attention of this story gets focused on the dramatic encounter itself, there is so much more happening that's important to hear. It's not lost on us that when Saul asks about the source of the light and the voice who has leveled him, the response is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, now, wait a minute. Saul isn't persecuting Jesus, only his followers. Yet, Jesus makes it clear to Saul that when he persecutes others, he is also persecuting Jesus, who identifies with those victimized by Saul's violence. 
Christ identifies with those who have been deemed other or unworthy by Saul and those like him who have and use power to persecute, manipulate, control. Well, that may stir a memory. See, we remember in Matthew's gospel that Jesus said, when you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. And Saul discovers that his actions toward others are also his actions toward Christ. For the divine is even in the ones Saul thought are inhuman and expendable. And that story is as relevant now as it was that day on the Damascus Road. But there is a postscript to Saul's epiphany that is not to be missed. After Saul is blinded and knocked flat, to be sure, a redeeming fall from the perch of certitude, he comes under the care of people who guide him to a house in Damascus and someone identified only as a disciple named Ananias. Ananias has had his own epiphany, a voice instructing him to go to Saul. Now, Ananias knows of Saul's persecuting ways and is understandably concerned, yet is assured that even this one, who has such a terrible track record of persecution, can be transformed into an earthen vessel of God's grace. So we would not overlook the courage of Ananias, nor the grace of God embodied in this disciple, who tends to Saul and helps him see what he had not been able to see before. Does Saul's conversion happen on the road? Or does Saul's conversion happen in the care of a disciple named Ananias? And we know it is both. For conversion is never one and done. It is always ongoing. Thanks to people like Ananias, who helps us see. Thanks to people like fishing buddies become shepherds who tend and feed the flock. The rather uninspiring sermon title, Eight Disciples, is ironically the story. Eight Disciples have made all the difference in the world. Without these eight disciples, plus those who led Saul to Damascus, without these disciples, would we even be here? One of the great temptations these days is to think we cannot make any difference. Now that's not a new worry. There are formidable forces that can work against what is good and just. So today, we remember eight disciples. And we remember something else. We remember the cast of our own disciples who have helped us become who we are today. Teachers, friends, counselors, the right person in the right moment who made all the difference and maybe they don't even know it. 
And we remember something else, that we too are called to be difference makers for others. We are to be the supporting cast of shepherds, tending and feeding all those Jesus claims as his, which John has told us is the whole world. At a recent meeting of the Norman Housing Ministries, which this church supports, we heard the story of Alicia, who had been one of the chronic and sadly vilified homeless living in Norman. Now, Alicia struggled with mental health, and it resulted in a troubling track record for successful housing, but one person took a chance to house her. And Norman Housing Ministries provided the deposit. And now she is clean and safe. She's better. Alicia knows a few of the people who have helped her, although she does not know everybody. But we do. It's eight disciples, plus all of you. A couple of blocks away, just north of the church, there's a new home going up. It's sponsored by Habitat for Humanity, which this church supports. The soon-to-be owners of that home know some of the people who have helped them, although they don't know everybody but we do. It's eight disciples, plus all of you. Christ shows up by a charcoal fire or a road toward a city and says, yes, yes, you are mine. You are my disciples. Eight disciples plus all of you. Well, as Gardner Taylor humorously advised, this sermon is finished, <laughs> so it's time to quit. <laughs> P.S. <laughs> Let's never quit.